Welcome all to another edition of A Positive Podcast. The feedback to this podcast has been quite overwhelming. And it seems like most of the people who are listening find the topics that we're discussing to be very relevant to their lives. And it seems to be in sync with what people are experiencing. And as such, I'm constantly on the lookout for interesting people who have wisdom to share with us all that can enhance our lives. So I'm really glad to see that the topics are resonating with people. And I'd love to hear your feedback. So please reach out to me at any time to give suggestions or ideas or feedback. You can reach me through my website, apositivecoach.com. In addition, if you're curious to learn more about my coaching, you can reach out through my website as well. We've actually begun a new initiative here at A Positive Podcast um, with regard to sponsorships. And I'm currently opening up our podcasts to be available for people to sponsor. So if you're interested in sponsoring any of our upcoming podcasts, please reach out to me um, through my website, apositivecoach.com or by email at raisel.jewishpeabody.com. And today's podcast is sponsored by Hinda in honor of her upcoming birthday. So happy birthday, Hinda. May you be blessed with a wonderful year. Thanks for sponsoring today's podcast. So with that introduction, let's get right into it. Let's begin a conversation with Dr. Rachel Lieberman. So Rachi, as I call her, and I have known each other since our high school days. We went to high school together um, for grades 11th and 12th. That's when I was in Beis Rifka. And we got to know each other then. And we reconnected over the summer this past summer, and we got to know each other again, which is kind of nice, 20 years plus years later. And after talking for many hours, I started to realize that Rachi has this practice and this modality of therapy that I think would be very interesting to my listeners. And so suffice to say that this podcast has been a long time in the making, and I saved a lot of the questions that I wanted to ask her at the time to actually discuss them here so that it'll be my first time hearing them, and that'd be interesting to me as well. So with that, I'm going to introduce you all to the woman behind Whole Story Speech, Dr. Rachel Lieberman. And here's a little bit of a bio about her. Rachi is a researcher with expertise in social communication disorder. She is the co-founder of Story Emotional Social Therapy called CEST, kind of pronounced like TEST, which is an interdisciplinary therapy model bridging the speech language pathology and mental health fields. Several of her research studies have been published in peer-reviewed research journals, including being a recurrent speaker at the New York State Speech Language Hearing Association, state conventions, and ASHA, American Speech Hearing Association's national conventions. Rachi consistently sticks to her dream of bringing research practice into children's and parents' hands. She wrote the popular children's book with a parent guide, embedding social emotional competence and language called Perla and her unpredictably perfect day. She continues to treat children who have social communication difficulties at her practice, Whole Story Speech, and she has been helping children and adults enhance their speech and language across diverse settings since 2001, including her previous therapy practice, A River Speech Therapy. And she has also received the 2013 and 2019 award for continuing education from ASHA. So first of all, I know that's a lot, but as a friend, I'm kind of really proud of her too. So it's kind of cool to see that, you know, my friend here, she's got a PhD too. So that's what I just going to start off by saying that. So Rafi, <laughs> I know that's like a mouthful that I just said there. And you're like, probably it's hard to hear all the things about yourself. But when I hear the word speech issues, okay, or speech, I think of a child that may be having a hard time saying the letters, the sound SH, like, shh. yet I know that it's so much more than that. You know, we were speaking together, you talked about how this is actually a modality of therapy that has been started, you know, by you, which is called CEST, Story Emotional Social Therapy. And I know, I now know that the guiding principles behind the CEST philosophy come from cognitive behavioral, behavioral therapy, emotional intelligence, positive psychology, my personal favorite, narrative and poetry therapy. But it seems to me that CEST is its kind of own modality. So can you tell us in brief, or explain to us what exactly is CEST. And in addition, I know you work with children who have difficulties using uh, language socially. How would one know if their child is struggling? Meaning what are some tell-all signs that your child could be struggling with this? And 
what would be some signs that may that may tell us that I, that you or your child may be ca a candidate for working with you? I know that's a lot in one question, but I figured I'm going to give it to you all so that you could go ahead and give us that information. Hi, Razel. Thank you for that. I'm so happy to be here. So you asked a great question. And as you said, it's layered. So I'm going to break the answer into three parts and let's dive right in. Okay, the first thing you said is that when you hear the word speech issues, you think of a child who has difficulty saying the sound shh, yet you know it's so much more than that. So let's start with this point, first point of where exactly social skills fall into language. And many people, their first question typically is why speech language pathologists are working on social skills. So let's get this technical part out of the way first. Language could be separated into three parts. So take the, the sh, the sh sound that you mentioned in your question, okay? Let's take the word shampoo. It has that sh sound right in the beginning. So one part of language looks at the form of sounds, the articulation of the lips, the teeth, the tongue to make the sh sound. A second part looks at content, the meaning of language. So for example, the meaning of the word shampoo is a liquid for cleaning. And the third part of language is using language for social purposes. So going into the pharmacy and using language to ask for your favorite brand of shampoo. So my work focuses on language use. Using language could look like asking for help when you're lost in a building, using language to ask a friend if they wanna come over, sharing a story that's on your mind with a friend, even with a neighbor, with your parent, with a teacher, and even with a principal, and knowing that the thought or the story that you're gonna share with the friend, with the teacher, with the principal will differ based on the situation and to who, who, the, who you're talking to. So that's how we use language. And that's where we are today in this podcast. And while it's very uh, common that people who don't struggle with social communication wonder that like using language is something I never even thought about. Why is that part of speech? Like if you have the words and just say it, right? So people, uh, it's not uncommon that when you don't struggle with social communication, um, individuals take social skills for, for granted. And the reality is that these skills are very difficult for many children and for many adults. So my area of expertise is the use of language particularly in social communication disorder. And it's also, you know, you may read about it with the words SCD, social communication disorder. SCD is a fairly new diagnosis. So a brief history, really short. In May, 2013, when the APA, which is the American Psychiatric Association, they published the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, which is a guide for healthcare professionals to diagnose mental health conditions, they periodically update it with new additions. So 2013, they made a fifth edition and they created a new diagnosis called social communication disorders. And the definition defining it with disabilities of so for social communication, but without repetitive restrictive behavior. And we'll go on to explain that in just a minute. So at the same time in 2013, the DSM took four separate categories of autism, names you, you, know, you may be very familiar with, autistic disorder, Asperger's syndrome, childhood disintegrative disorder, and PDD-NOS, which stands for pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. And in this edition, they took those four separate categories and consolidated. It's now in only one umbrella of a diagnosis, it's called Autism Spectrum Disorder, ASD, with different severity levels. So it's important that when we talk about social communication disorder, we gotta figure out how this is different from autism. So in 2013, the, uh, the DSM really watered the, the, the characteristics and the criteria for autism into two areas, which are persistent difficulty in social communication. So it's a really a persistent difficulty 
uh, in the interaction and restricted repetitive behaviors or restricted repetitive interests. For example, let's say a child with autism, okay? So they may talk about video games or a lot of anime. <laughs> and um, anime, it's just a sidebar here, is it's a style of animation that I had no, no idea about until last year. Um, and I just thought it was so uh, exciting and interesting when I found out about it because it is so important. I encourage all family members and therapists to become fluent, but really fluent and knowledgeable about the things that your children are interested in, even if you believe that it's atypical. So let's say this interest of anime, it's not atypical. Many people are interested in anime. It's its own category of movies, but this child is fixated on it. In other words, it's a very strong topic. It's repetitive. It's laced through every conversation. It's, it's coming up in every conversation that is far removed from anything about movies or video games. So these children could also have repetitive sensory interests with like fascination with lights and fans. And on the other hand, a child with social communication disorder, anime may come up, right? They may be interested in it. They may be interested in, in anime. They also might be interested in skateboarding and they also might be interested in subway systems. But it's not laced in every conversation. They have a variety of interests. And the key difference here is they're not fixated on it. So because of that, children that I work with, who, who I work with with using language, they can either have a diagnosis of social communication disorder or autism or anxiety or ADHD because social communication disorder has comorbid conditions, which is a condition that goes alongside, such as mood disorders. So it's very common where a child will come and they struggle with, let's say a mood disorder or ADHD, but they're exhibiting these symptoms. So, um, you know, Michelle Garcia, winner from Social Thinking, she calls it diagnostic soup. It's like, you, you have to um, realize that they're coming with certain features of behavior. So now let's get to your second question was in terms of the signs. So now that we have this knowledge, we could talk and see how do we know if your child is struggling? And I think that so far from our conversation, perhaps our listeners may be seeing that social communication is complex and it's complicated by comorbid diagnosis. But despite the complexity, it's really important to be aware if your child's struggling. So I wanna be clear, I'm gonna give examples, but I gotta get this point out first, okay? <laughs> a difference in communication is not a disorder, meaning there are differences in families, differences in culture, differences in communities, differences in dialect. Um, I have found social, social communication differences even in neighborhoods. I have children in my practice who travel to me from different parts of Brooklyn and different parts of Long Island. And even within those different locations, I see differences and those differences are not a disorder. So um, different families communicate different ways. And even within socioeconomic standards, there are certain things that are socially acceptable and normal and typical. And in certain socioeconomic um, conditions, they're not. And it's just really important that we understand that we don't run to uh, diagnose somebody because they have a difference. And sometimes even I have to say, it could be a personality. It could be a personality clash. So the probably the most important piece that I, and probably even the strongest motivation for, for doing my work is that it's really essential for children with SCD to get a thorough and well done evaluation. And what would come up in the evaluation? So where do you look? So now that you know that an evaluation is important, let's talk about where you would see social communication difficulties. So you see it in conversation. That's the hallmark. So these children can do really well on formal language tests, but in conversation, let's say for example, you're talking to a, a child about the traffic that they're, you know, the mom explains that there was a lot of traffic on the way to the session, okay? So you're talking about traffic and you're with the child talking and they would show unrelated responses, responses that are off topic. They don't do a give and take. 
So it's almost like you want to pass the teleprompter and say like, okay, your turn to answer now. Or the opposite, they monopolize the conversation. Uh, they, they, they're talking all about themselves and they have a difficult time remembering that they have to change their language to different users. Um, they won't give enough background information. So for example, they're gonna talk about people, they're gonna call them in their, with their first names because they have difficulty with theory of mind, which is like understanding that another person's thoughts and beliefs are different than your own. And they have a difficult time with ellipses, which is the language of knowing that you or may or may not have experience with something. And I might need to give more language, like almost like what I'm doing now with this question, I'm giving you all this background so that you're not having a gap in my answer. So even if they give a first name like Mary, I don't know who Mary is. Oh, it's the woman who runs the photocopying room in your school. Oh, so even if you told me Mary's last name, I won't know. So poor volume, we also see poor volume, poor tone adjustment to match the social environment. A very difficult time picking up social cues. So for like even spacing. So for example, I would say like, can I borrow your book? Sure. That space usually says something that it took me a while to answer. Maybe I was thinking if I need it. And the next thing I would say, hey, do you need the book? But that space would not register as something that has nonverbal communication to it. So there's you know, basic difficulties with the basic three, what I call the three eyes. Hi, bye, look with your eyes. Um, not understanding not literal language, like jokes, idioms, metaphors, or even if let's say, kids in the class, in the, in the child's class are passing around memes that day and they're just struggling. Like, I don't know why I don't understand this meme. Everyone's laughing. Okay, putting a description to their feeling or um, that conversation that doesn't advance beyond small talk, even for people that they identify as their closest people. And of course, outside of conversation, there's difficulty with understanding nonverbal language, like let's say seeing a picture and in the picture, the person looks really, really upset and they're pointing to something broken and they, they're in a store. And you know, I say, can we guess maybe what they're trying to do? They have a shopping bag, are they returning something? And the child would say, I don't know, it, I can't read the lips. If it's a picture, so I can't read the lips. So that's that literal, like if I was able to read the person's lips in the picture, I could tell you what's wrong. But if I can't read the lips, like I don't see other things in the picture that could be wrong. And it's really like a lack of gesturing. Like if I asked you to um, say, um, you know, say, I don't know with um, out saying, I don't know. So just uh, like looking just with your face. So the ability, let's say to like scrunch up your, your eyes or like pick up your shoulders, that, that's challenging. And they may have executive function, like not being able to see like a one thing relates to the other. Like how I behaved yesterday impacts the way people treat me today or tomorrow. And, um, you know, just, just I, I don't wanna go through an exhaustive list, but just to give you the idea, there can be a elementary girl with social communication difficulties who she, a friend of hers who's really not so academic asks her to study with her. And she'll look at the girl and say directly to her face, no, you're too slow. I need to chill tonight. And this is such a sweet girl who has a heart of gold, but she has a hard time, difficulty with theory of mind. Like how do I think it would be like to be in someone else's shoes to hear that? And even that metaphor, someone else's shoes can go way over her head and we have to explain it. So, um, a well-done evaluation looks through everything. And unfortunately, these children are often overlooked because teachers, they can't put their finger on it. So the teacher either says, I can't put my finger on it, or sometimes they, they, they may themselves be struggling. And so they, they don't have the right words because they can't put their finger on it, which in itself is valid and fine to say, but they will not say. Um, and also like sometimes adults, um, especially not family members, like they'll see the child as charming and engaging with adults, but they fail to see that the same age peers would never talk about them that way. And they also do well exceptionally like in, in academics. Um, and statistically, we know that there's about seven, the preliminary research indicates there's 7.5% of children who experience social communication difficulties, higher rates of difficulties with males and females, and that background gives us to 
um, your last part of the question about CEST. So what is CEST? CEST is Story Emotion Social Therapy, S-E-S-T. It's an interdisciplinary approach between speech pathology and mental health that I co-founded co um, and it will be published in research by September, 2022, it's been accepted. And what I was looking at from my years of being a speech pathologist, I was looking for an, for an approach to teach children social communication that wasn't measuring up to so-called typical communicators. So I wanted to find out an approach to where the children could tap into their own self if they could learn the language, the narratives, and they could say stories that are on their mind. And I need to operationally define the word story. Stories are narratives that all people tell. They could be a story about your day. It could be directions. It could be a recipe. It could be anything that you're telling, something that you, you, you're retelling even a story that you heard. So if children, my vision was that if children could learn how to say these narratives and narratives have in it social and emotional elements, they have all stories have um, feelings, how, how you felt, and it also has problems and resolutions, then I would be able to hear what the children say and their answers themselves would give them the ideas and the tools to be able to um, give them the supports that they need. So no checklist. Remember, I was not looking for something like, okay, say hi to grandpa. Remember when we go to grandpa, look at him and say hi, that, that's not working. We needed something that came from the child themselves. And the second thing that was really important to me was that parents, while parents, are not therapists and parents should not be a therapist. Their goal is to give unconditional acceptance and love and support to their child. But parents would be the unique bridge. And if parents could create a channel that they could connect to their child and figure out, besides for telling them social skills, remember, you know, don't uh, touch your ear, don't touch inside your ear when you're with your friend. Um, you know, just I just thought of any silly example, but any type of checklist skills, say hi, then they could actually connect to their child. So these stories are a bridge. These narratives are a bridge. The, the framework for CEST has two pillars and the pillars come from the narrative side from speech therapy, it's called story grammar, parts of a story. And this other pillar is from the mental health side called cognitive behavioral therapy, right? A form of talking therapy that's used to treat people. And it's based on the idea with many, you know, different problems of how we think our cognition and how we feel our emotion and how we act that, that, that all interacts. So um, the, 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 the bridge, that would be the um, connection where um, the, the bridge in the mental health field, it was co-founded by uh, my co-founder, Dr. Um, Dr. Gary Dick, LISW, he's a psychotherapist. He's been practicing for 40 years, and he was originally a member of my PhD committee, which I'm so grateful for. And so let's say when someone comes to Gary and they have a difficult time expressing their thoughts, they can use the language and the story grammar prompts that help them get out their story, right, and to say their story. And um, the framework as we mentioned before, has a bridge. And the bridge that connects these two professions um, is supported by approaches, which we will talk about some of that today, approaches from emotional intelligence, mindfulness, narrative therapy, poetry therapy, and narrative language. So we just spoke about the bridge. So um, let's, let's recap, okay? So there's story grammar and there is cognitive behavioral therapy. They're joined by the stories, they have parallels, because they relate to the emotional and social situations that individuals talk about when they first come into therapy. So like telling the beginning of a story, the initial therapy wants to understand the individual's first events of their story. And story grammar's uh, em characters, emotions, and thoughts in the story relates to CBT's beliefs about their experience. And the story problem and resolution those are story parts 
they show events that the what we what the what a person tells about what they did or what they think they need to do or the help they need for their problem resolution. But here's the important thing to consider. Because problem resolution is guided by how an individual believes, it will shape their conclusion to the story. And in CEST, we have to stop and see, is this a healthy or unhealthy response that's helping you communicate and be socially communicating to another individual? Let's explore those thoughts and feelings. Let's get kids to say those narratives so we can know what's, what's, what's deep inside them. So the, the practices for CES, um, the speech side, so I'm the, the speech therapist, so I'll talk about the practices on the speech side, has, it's called spin practices, where children become mindful. They may, they may be running away from their feelings because it's so painful sometimes, but now they become mindful about their feelings, mindful about their thoughts, mindful about the stories they have. They label emotions. They learn the parts of a story. You wouldn't believe, Rachel, how many times Children just don't know the parts of a story. And then they're offered a choice to interpret the story through different lenses and to um, really practice self-acceptance. So I think we're ready for a practical example. Practically speaking, before you go into an example, are you, are you referring to also kids that say, for example, you mentioned narratives of stories, understanding stories, um, children that have a hard time with like taking a story and actually understanding it completely even let's say in school like you're saying specifically stories that they tell others or tell you or, or you tell them or the teacher tells them I'm just curious also does that show up in school work do that does that is that something that you will see also with them that they have a hard time in doing that in, in with their homework or in class I'm just curious if that's also yeah. part of it yeah so very interesting is that there's an expression with autism that says if you met one child with autism then you met one child with autism. And I, I believe it's the same way. If you met one child with social communication disorder, then you met one child with social communication disorder. Some children, I will give an evaluation and in their informal language, their comprehension of language is above age level. They comprehend okay. perfectly. They comprehend the stories perfectly. Their expression, they can retell every part of every story. They just don't know how to use it. Then like the example you're giving, sometimes a child will not know the basic parts of the story. I, I don't know, I have this idea in my head. I just, I can't say first, I can't say, you know, the characters or the setting or where I was or what I was feeling, or I can't even figure out what the problem was. Um, but I just know that like I'm stuck with this problem and and I don't I don't have the parts to the story. So okay. it's very so every child, very... So every situation is different. You're not you can't yes. it's each each situation and and so let me just ask one more thing before you want an example. Sure. What about a child that gives too many details? A person oh, that yeah. tells a story and it takes them, let's say, 25 minutes to get to the point of the story. <laughs> would that be yes. considered would that also yes. be a symptom like yes. that shows up? Yes, yes. So um first of all. Uh, children who say too much information are similar profile to the children who say too little. Okay. They have a difficult time filtering what they should say to who. And what we do a lot of work um, is taking listening exercises with um, the finding, finding what the details are and finding what the main idea is. And for some children, that can be a big job listening to you, trying to figure out what your main idea and what your details. And once they have that right, then they're able to say, when I'm going to talk, I'm going to say my main idea. If I need it, I'll give details. So yeah, that's something that could yeah, that's be- That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so go back, I don't want, I don't, I'm sorry. Yeah, sure. No, no, this is so, go this ahead. is great. This so is go, great because- Go right into so the let's example. Go back. Yeah. Let's go right into the examples. And yes, every child is so different and so unique. There's no rule book. But when I go, when I prepare for my sessions, I don't know what the children will bring up. It's extremely, extremely exploratory. It's up to them. I get to know the real them. What, what, I don't just come with hi, bye, you know. So let's get to an example. So let's take an example. Uh, it's Hanukkah, okay, from last year. The class is having a performance and let's call the child Sarah, okay? Sarah's eight and she has a lot of difficulty performing in a group. She usually acts out. What she'll do is 
she'll stand up if everyone's sitting or she'll point her eyes, she'll make mean faces, um, she'll ignore her teacher. And when her teacher talks to her, she just doesn't respond. So the teacher who's wonderful and kind is concerned about what's in Sarah's best interest. Should she stand up in front of the class, be in a situation that she can't handle? Should we teach her social skills to learn how to control her big emotions, to smile, to sing, to stand straight? What should we do? And the child comes to me for services. She comes individually. And when the mom drops her off, we, she talks for a few minutes about the, the, um, the Hanukkah dilemma. This is in front of the child in, in, in a way that we are all collaborating. This, we don't talk about a child in front of a child. We talk together in a respectful way of communicating. So again, like I, I never know where the session is going to take me. It's explorative. All the answers come from her. All the social cues I pick up from her narrative. So um, Baruch Hashem, she does not resist the mindfulness practices anymore. She's mindful. She could say how she feels about the Hanukkah event. And she says she feels scared. Now, she also has been taught the story parts. So for the story grammar I use, I use something adapted from Stein and Glenn and from Makonada, like the somebody wanted but so. The whole story approach combines their thoughts, their feelings, the because, the human needs that from Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication. They use hand gestures. So Sarah uses a cue card, okay? And she says, you know, with all the parts, and she says, I wanted to speak my Hanukkah part, but I make go away faces. I thought mothers were all looking at me. I feel mad because I like to feel safe and my teachers get mad. So just some background. Um, the because I need to feel safe, those are her needs that we, she's already knows about and we've already gone through. Her cause and effect, I make these faces, she already knows now. I make mean faces, teacher gets mad. But look what's going on in the narrative. How could I teach her a social skill? Sarah, we're gonna have a performance. Let's make, let's do social practice. Let's rehearse. How can I teach her social skills if I don't know the story in her head? So she says the story and what comes out? That the mothers were all looking, only looking at me. So she's had other performances and she feels that mothers come and they only looking at her. So by using the, the narrative, she could tell me about the emotional life of her story. So we move away from the outside world into her own account, the feelings associated, we're all social beings. So I hear her story, I accept her story, we sit with it, we even draw her story. However, and like we mentioned before, this is the crucial point in, in CES where I want Sarah to be curious and make meaning out of what she just told me. So I want her to know that her, like her perception and her feelings it might become obvious that these might be a cognitive distortion. These might, these might be not the reality. So we have conversations. And, and I just want to interrupt that for a second. And as a parent, you know, if a child came to their parent and said that, I, I've heard and I've said, yeah. oh, you're, you're just you're you're just imagining that. That's not true. That's not happening. So <laughs> that that what that usual reaction that parents teachers may have when a kid will say, right. I don't want to get up on stage because. <laughs> Everyone's looking at me. All right. the parents are only looking at me. And you would say, no, that's not, you know, you disregard her feelings. So what I'm hearing you say is that it, the first part is to really acknowledge that feeling, to give it, yes. give her the ability to express that, to come yes. out and say, let's draw it. Let's talk about it. How does it feel? What does it look like? Yes. And only then are you able to then figure out how to, how to get to the, the next step. Correct. So the, um, I, I can't, it's, it's analyzed by this. You feel, you say how you feel. Do you have a T, a trigger story, the Hanukkah event, the I, you interpret, you interpret the story, you reckon, you interpret the story that everyone's looking at me, okay? So we accept that story and we don't judge that story. That story comes out exactly. You don't say it's not true, but that's her story, right? But the reality is, is that we want to be able to help her expand her theory of mind, expand uh, the, the, the black and white thinking. So, and we, we learn, you know, we say, wait a minute. Okay. So she's actually able to answer yes and no questions and what and when and why. So we, we have nice conversations and we, and we, she's aware and we start drawing about, we learn about black. Mm, black is everyone, all bad. All the mothers are looking and they literally only came to stare at you. Why it is mothers are looking only at the child they came for their own child, that's it. And gray is like, is it possible that a human cannot stare at something the whole entire time? 
Like, is it possible? Like maybe it's not black, it's not white, maybe it's gray. So we play games. I ask her to stare at my nose. We set a timer, we laugh. She can't just stare at my nose. She has to look somewhere else, it's getting annoying. So then I ask her to have a second interpretation story, a second narrative, an alternative story. And she comes up with, I wanted to speak my Hanukkah part, so I'd say it softly. And I look at the wall because I feel scared. I thought mothers might look at me because it's hard to only look at their own child the whole time. I feel trust because I can look at mommy to feel safe. And my teacher gives me a prize for standing and behaving in front of the class. So lastly, the, the children are offered a choice. So they are offered a choice and to decide which story they wanna go with. Because it's essential to remember that our aim as a, as a therapist is not to try and fix them. Our goal is to create a space for them to sit and think about their stories, thoughts and feelings, to understand that thoughts and actions are related. And you know, I had these little adorable characters, like let's say Twirla, she twirls, she has a lot of thoughts and feelings. She goes from twirling out of control to twirling like a ballerina when she could think about her thoughts and feelings. My goal is not for today's Hanukkah party to stand and behave and not you know, make a fool and not embarrass. My goal is for you to make space to think about your stories, thoughts, and feelings so it can create different outcomes, different resolutions. For this girl, it happens to be, that was her choice story. She did do a chart. She did, she did the choice story. She felt great that she did it. She looked at the wall. She felt safe knowing that her mother was there and that knowing that mothers may look at her because it is not black and white. It is gray. You can't look at something the whole time. She did celebrate with her mother. I lived down the block from an ice cream store. She went with her ice cream after her mother. And this was great. She still struggles, but this was a win. But I want to be crystal clear that actually many, many times children come to me and they go through the SES methodology and they say, nah, not today. I'm sticking with the, the first story. I know it's not helpful. I'm not in the mood. I'm not interested. But that's totally accepted because they went through the story. They were able to get out their narrative and that is celebrated. And of course, the referrals and the collaborations work when there is a difficulty that the child's really stuck. The collaborations work where I refer out to the mental health professional or the opposite, the mental health professional is referring to me. And sometimes they have, I mean, typically what we have is a journal. Um, sometimes parents just do voice notes, but a lot of times the best way is the journal where the children write their stories with me and then they go to the, their therapist and they talk more about their healing, their thoughts and their feelings. You mentioned something about anxiety. Yeah. And depression, yeah. how that could sometimes that could be the symptom when really yeah. it's 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 sim it's, it's a symptom. So we know that today so many teens, so many children are struggling with anxiety. Mm -hmm. And it's become and some of them have debilitating anxiety. Right. How do you find that SES therapy helps combat anxiety? Mm -hmm. Okay. So first of all, children with social communication disorder, many of them have anxiety. And I'm not sure always, I, you know, I tell mothers, um, it's true that some children are born neurologically, but I, what I have found is that they feed into each other. I'm not sure what came first, the chicken or the egg. Is it the failed interactions that make the person like intuitively doubt their social abilities? Then does their resultant resistance to interact in social interactions make them uncomfortable and more anxious? And, and look more socially limited than they actually are. I don't know. Um, it's always a, it's always you know individual specific. Um, sometimes parents can really pinpoint that answer. Sometimes they, they're just as you know curious. Um, with cest with narrative skills, the first thing is labeling the emotions. And these painful feelings can be very difficult. It causes itself anxiety, so it can be a catch twenty two. Like to be running away always for from your feelings and then have to sit with that feeling, it can be very painful. And um, for when children though um, are able to face their feelings, even just for a second, they actually feel so great. Like, oh my God, like I could do this. I could just say how I'm feeling and it's fine. I don't have to judge it. So the, in my practice, whole story speech we have where you come in and you do a second to check it. And in this exercise, I make it normal. It's normal that your body arrives somewhere but your head did it. It's a normal thing that happens to everyone. It happens to me, even me, I'm sitting over here. You know, my head, is, my body's here, but I'm not sure my head is here. So I need to have 
what I used to call a minute to clock in, but the kids got so scared from the word minute, it got such anxiety. How could I be with myself for one minute? Quiet. So I do a second to check in. And when they second to check in, initially children could resist it because it feels so fearful. But then when they run towards their feelings, they feel better. But what happens with sex is that when children say narratives, many, many times all roads lead back to very painful situations which bring up anxiety or cause them to get worked up. And the interesting thing about the, the anxiety narratives is that they really differ by the children's personalities. Like for children with social communication difficulties who have extroverted um, um, personalities, right? So they look to their, they look at their, um, to their peers, their, their peers see, see them as like egocentric, you only care about yourself and monopolizing the conversation. Then the kids get mad at them. They start getting triggered and fighting. Um, and they have these urges to say, their anxieties have urges to say, like they're so afraid of silence in the conversation. Then they have urges to say every single thing private about themselves because maybe my friend will be upset if she didn't know that I would do that. So um, um, and she'll be upset, she'll be upset. I didn't go. So it's like, it feels like a running force. I must, 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 must let it out. And for them, I teach them to strain the pasta. You have thoughts, you have feelings, and you need to be able to figure out what you want to say, what's public, what's private. For them, it's, I call it the mouse and the house matrix. Like you're going to talk, you have to talk about everything. Um, is it really necessary to tell your friends everything? Is it because you want to try to get a friend by saying something that's like low level on the matrix? Like, by the way, I had a mouse in my house yesterday. What kind of friends would that get you? Is it healthy for you? But the child who has more of an introver introverted um, personality, their anxiety makes them want to withdraw from their peers, okay? And then with theory of mind, it's difficult for them to understand that they're giving a message to their friends that I am not even interested in you even though they're craving acceptance. So these stories are very, very, very painful. And when we discuss different social endings, I do have to say that some children say, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to ask. Uh, you know, I, I get it. They understand that I'm vibing, you know, like use their word vibing, leave me alone, like not interested. Um, but I get too anxious. Like even if all the boys are grabbing their cell phone by lunch and saying, I'm running for pizza, and even if their second set stories are more realistic, it's not that they hate you, so they're running out, but their second stories are saying, wait a minute, other boys in the class also grab their cell phone and say, I'm joining, but I'm not ready for that. So sometimes that's also what happens. The anxiety is so crippling that they give off these, uh, these impressions that they're not interested. Wow. So there's so many different, yeah. it's hard to, I don't, <laughs> I, I wonder know. how one evaluates for that. Cause there's so the spectrum yeah. is so great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, because it's a multidisciplinary evaluation. So there's um, the child comes in and gets a speech language evaluation where I look at their pragmatics, their social skill, their language, their emotions. Mm -hmm. But typically the children who come to me already come with previous evaluations from psychologists. And if not, okay. they have to refer out. Yeah. Right. Fascinating. So let me ask you another question, because um, yeah. let's say a parent who notices that their child may have some of these symptoms that you're describing or some of these behavioral symptoms, let's say, um, talk too much or too little, yeah. Or yeah. introverted, yeah. whatever any of these that we've talked about. Um, and they notice that their child, their child's struggling mm -hmm. and they think that their child can gain from, let's say, SAS therapy. Mm -hmm. And, but this child's like, no way, I'm not going to therapy. I'm not talking to anybody else as it is. They're barely comfortable talking to their teacher. Never mind to have to go and make a re relationship with a new person, a therapist. Um, or maybe they even had a bad experience with the therapy before so that they don't want to, but what could a parent do? Because it sounds like so many things that you just talked about. I'm, I'm curious if a parent can be helpful to this child, even by learning some of these techniques and trying some of these things, how could a parent be helpful to this child if the child isn't willing to go to therapy? Yeah, so that's a great question. Great question. And um, the first thing I would do, sometimes it is like um, where, I, where the child doesn't want to go, which I absolutely um, want to get to that. Sometimes a parent also, I find that a parent also is not sure. They may call me, they, they, you know, they're, they're also unsure. So the first way we could practice with CEST is by allowing the parent the dignity and the space to express their thoughts and feelings, what comes up for them, tell their story. Sometimes it could be funds, you know, sessions add up, it's expensive. 
Sometimes it could be hecticness. It's so overwhelming and it's so draining. And sometimes it's frozen fear. It's hard to accept. It's hard to see their child in pain. Um, and sometimes, like you say, the child, the parents are ready, but the child's refusing. So I want to give you an example. Uh, I, I had a girl come to me. She was really struggling, but she was not interested. She was polite during the sessions, but she never did her homework. And homework has to be done every day. The homework has to be done with a parent. It has to be done with another communicator partner. There has to be voice notes or video meetings every day. Video messages, homework, everyone gets different homework, different conversations. And when we, do, when we did the CES practice, what came up for her was a very interesting story. So some context, I live in Brooklyn and I, I live in Crown Heights it's an, and I live in an old uh, bones Brooklyn house. And we're extremely, extremely grateful to live here. When we moved though, we moved from a condo that was fresh, fresh walls to a house that was a real commodity because it didn't require any work. So we were very busy with our lives and we ended up you know, moving right away in and we actually fell in love with this old house, but because it's old, it needs a lot of work. Like it needs wallpaper to cover up old walls, but in the end, it's very, very charming. And my office is in, uh, in the basement of the house. So the girl, on the other hand, she travels in from an area where the houses are very upscale, typically renovated, very nice. Um, so back to our story. So that was the context. The girl is a very polite girl. So, and she's sensitive to her mother's approval, but she, she comes to sessions, but she resents it and she pushes off. She doesn't do her homework. Um, and what comes up for her in her story is that she comes to speech therapy and she interprets it that her mother doesn't accept her and love her for her, her way she is. And the things that she wants to talk about, they're unique to her and that's how it is and why can't everyone accept me why should I change the whole entire world and she says look at your house and she's a very polite girl and she says look at your house she tells me there's a movie from um, Ugly Dolls that has a song in it it's broken and beautiful and the words of that song broken and beautiful remind me of your house it's old the wood is broken but it's also beautiful so why can't I be you know, it's also ironic how many children, more than one child made a comment to me about the way they view themselves with my, they said, your house is broken and beautiful. So, you know, the, the fact that she was able to say that story, you know, Maya Angelou, she said, uh, there's no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. But, you know, that balance, it really, the fact that she said that, so at the end, she, she did not, I, I suggested that she should not continue. Um, and I was really struggling I, with that. It really bothered me, like this whole balance. And I was talking to one of my co-collaborators where I write research grants the other days. And she said to me, you know, you got her to a good point. She's good enough. Isn't that the point? And I was so stuck. I said, I, I, I got to get comfortable with this. I got to study more. Um, Deborah Reber, she wrote um, the Differently Wired. She talks about this balance, right? She says, you know, we can't give the children the message that something is wrong, but then again, we want to help them. So like maybe the child, I, you know, I don't know. The parent may not be articulating it. I don't know. I can use this to find out. But maybe the child thing, like my child is neurodivergent, which means that they're differing in their mental or neurological functioning. But you know, I don't know how to balance this. And that's a very normal story that many people have. So, um, you know, Dvorah Reaper, she calls it, she says to the children, the way your brain is wired, you do things a certain way. And that doesn't mean it's wrong. I'm just paraphrasing from her. It causes you frustration. Um, I, so we're going to learn some ways that you can be fr not frustrated. And Razel, on your podcast, in reference to something else, I heard Shimon Russell saying, uh, happy, healthy from children in that order. So I kind of like that. That I, after studying for a while and I looking at the the ASHA leader, the the, the latest um, uh, one they had about how children rehearse scripts who are aut who have autism, and they re rehearse these social scenarios and they feel so inauthentic when they're saying it. And what they came up with is with, it's with the choice with the child themselves. Um, so I tell kids, be you happy. And if you're happy that way, fine. Typically they're not. And um, what I could say for strategies to make it practical is I would say to parents, listen to your child, listen. A very simple exercise, child talks and you be quiet. So difficult. 
a child talks and you let them talk, say their, let them say their stories, make the atmosphere okay enough that their stories come out and wonder together. Wondering is another unbelievable skill where it increases theory of mind. And they're able to, to wonder, like, I wonder if, I'm curious. And then what happens is that helps them be socially curious. Another skill we have is about listening to the room. You walk into every room, there's a vibe. And to be able to get that, be socially smart, we wonder together, go on the subway and wonder. Um, taking turns for young children, playing a ball, throwing a ball back and forth and repeating phrases, um, practicing yes, no questions, feeling comfortable asking silly, silly questions back and forth. Um, how about and the, the most comforting and how about things that fit into a schedule? That's my favorite techniques, like bibliotherapy. So take out a book. Anyway, sometimes it's nice to just chill on a couch sometimes with a kid or if you're laying in bed and putting kids to sleep, read a book and talk about feelings in a book. Talk about a social problems in a book. These are all, all ways to help children. I love that. That's great. Describe in short what an actual therapy session would look like. Like, what is it exactly you do with somebody who is struggling with this? Like, is there homework? You mentioned homework. I know that you mentioned some like things. Can you give us a brief overview of that? What that would look yes. like? Sure. So a typical therapy session involves the child coming in and first of all, being able to have that second to check in, give them a minute, normalize the mindfulness practice. Once they check in to be able to label and say how they're feeling. Then we teach the story grammar parts and they're able to say and recognize a trigger story, something that happened to them, an initiating story, a first story. And then we use the narrative skills to talk about the story, to recognize the way they interpret the story, to figure out different social behaviors that may respond to the resolution of the story and allowing them to choose. But a key feature really is homework. Um, sessions are short. It's like I always say, like you go to the doctor and they give you a prescription, but you have to take that medicine every single day, sometimes three times a day. So the homework is the essential, essential part. Um, as I mentioned, they submit this daily by, by video or text messages or uh, sorry, or WhatsApp um, or text. Um, and basically they can talk to a person like their father, their mother, a sibling, and the next, and the child will listen. And let, let's say, for example, listen for the main message, uh, separate the main idea, clarifies, you said this, am I right? And then switch. Um, the goal really is to go away from the proverbial, like how is school today? Good, bad, ignore, we don't want that. So in the homework, when the, when the parents and children engage in conversation and they learn to answer yes, no questions, um, the yes, no, they, they go and they move away from dead end silences, but not because they're, they're engaging in meaningless social skills. Let me ask you a question, you answer, I ask, you answer, but because they wanna connect with another person so that the person can know them, so that they can mm -hmm. be experienced, so that they can experience someone else. And parents tell me that sometimes you know, she, she's used to, let's say, having a one word conversation with her son. But because of the homework, they're almost like forced to engage in conversation. And after they send the voice notes, sometimes they just sit with each other. And she says how they feel so much calmer. We didn't have meaningless narrative clutter. We were small talk. We connected. Mm. I spoke. He listened. I felt loved. They are conversations that come from the child. So they're the child's whole story. And so the mother it really was able to experience that. Yeah. Right. So it sounds to me like because of this um, directed homework, it's causing them to then be able to have the proper conversations. Because I, I, I do know that there are children that you couldn't come home or, or especially if you're parenting from a distance and you're like, how was school? It's great. It's one word answers and, and that's could be challenging. But like if you're directed, if you're learning how to ask questions that are not yes, no, but actually thinking questions, curiosity, like even a simple question, who did you sit next to at lunch? Or what did they serve for lunch? Or things like that to kind of pique them and get them to be able to answer more. So it's really, it's practice is what you're saying. And that that's what they're doing in these sessions is they're learning how to do this properly with guidance. And the more that they're practice, the better they get at it, like anything in life. Absolutely. And there's nothing more joyous for me than seeing a child who used to give one to two word answers and feel so alone. 
and now talk because they know that someone's going to listen and they have conversations that are real with their parents. And to me, I see that as very holy work and there's nothing more exciting than that. I can't even, I can imagine that that must be. So Rachi, thanks so much for your time. I want to, I want you to leave us off with something, some parting words, some advice, something that you can share with us before you, about this topic. Sure. So, um, And on a deep, deep personal level, my academic journey began when my parents believed in me. I was not, you said you and I go back to high school, Razel. I was not an interested student in high school. I was doing very well cruising by. And when I began my higher education as a young single girl, my parents, may they be be blessed, never ever questioned if I would be successful they, they only had questions of practicality. Like for example, I was, you know, really wanted to go to a particular graduate school in the Bronx. And my parents had practicality questions such as driving there and the traffic and the train. And, right. But they never ever questioned if I'd be successful. And that not questioning my success and that belief is what I want to dedicate this to. So if I could have wow. the chutzpah, the sheer audacity, right? Uh, to, yeah. Chutzpah could be good or bad, right? So to yeah. ask you, Razel, and the listeners who will be listening, Emirates Hashem, to doing, I know you may be listening, like I know when I listen to podcasts, I'm cooking, I'm walking, you know, I, I, I clean so I can listen, you know what I mean? So if you can, while you're doing what you're doing, just be mindful or if you want to stop and be in the moment, mindful of the people in your life who have unconditional faith in you. So I just want to pause. We're going to do a second to check in. I want you to just do that for 30 seconds. And if that's too much, 15. because I like to celebrate baby steps, I'll leave it at 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't a, just a feel good activity, Razel, but it's really a learning activity. So you can walk away from this podcast with something tangible. And I did that for two reasons. Number one is because mindfulness is really the first step in all assessed activities and all activities. You arrive somewhere, make it normal to say, I need a second to check in. It's normal. Your body arrived somewhere, but your head didn't. That's normal. Let's normalize that. It's part of good social emotional competence. It's good a part of good social skills. Teachers can go into classrooms and say, guys, let's have a second to check in. And that's normal. My body's here, my head is not. Let my head arrive. Secondly, on a practical manner, um, whenever I was stuck in my doctoral journey, balancing my life, staying focused through hardships, and there were many, many hardships, <laughs> Becoming mindful of my support system, really knowing, embracing, and understanding my support system got me to where I am today. So I leave you with those mindful thoughts. Love it. Mindfulness, it's such a powerful tool. And so it's, such a, it's such a, a basic idea in Hasidus and Kabbalah. And mm-hmm. yet it's so hard sometimes to do, actual to actually do it. And especially I feel like with the noise of our lives and everything going on around us, we're just so busy that we, we, we give ourselves excuses. Oh, we don't have to do it, but it's so <laughs> important to do it. It's so important to take time. Um, like you said, you calling it mindfulness. Um, I do that same exercise every morning and it's gratitude and focus. Right. It's the same That's idea. Right. It's taking, taking time to really just focus on what I have and what I, what I'm, what I'm receiving already and how I'm grateful for that. Um, these are really there's a lot to process, a lot to think about. Um, and I just, again, want to thank you for your time, Rachi. Thanks sure, for giving us. Razel, sure. It was so great. And <laughs> so like nice a, chatting. A, a shout out to the base Ripka girls, right? Nothing yes. like a good old base Ripka girl. Nothing <laughs> like it. We're blessed. <laughs> I love we're, it. we're blessed. We're blessed for that. Yes. So um, thank you again for your time, Rachi. And sure. if you're interested in contacting Rahi, you can reach her at her website. Can you tell us again your website? Yeah, sure. My website is wholestoryspeech.com. Right. Also read about my different research publications and my children's book and just a, a fun place to visit. Information. Yeah. So information, I, yeah. thank you yes. so much. And thank you. Thank you everyone, so much. You a great day. Yes. And only success. Amen. Thank you.